A couple of weeks ago, our family was at a college graduation. We heard a great speech from an 80-something-year-old um, Old Testament professor who was retiring, and I, I've got to say that uh, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but it was a much better than average graduation speech. But you know what these things are like. They're advice from an older and hopefully wiser person to young adults launching out into the world. And so they might take a theme like, today is the first day of the rest of your life, or if someone asks you why, ask why not, or my wife's favorite, if you want to change the world, start out by making your bed. And so I think you get the idea. In some ways, the entire book of 2 Timothy is a graduation address, although it's just written to a single individual, a young man named Timothy from his mentor, Paul. Now, while it's a private letter, it was so helpful to Timothy that eventually he shared it with others, and those found it helpful, and they shared it with even more, and so it's been passed down all the way to us. Paul wrote the letter while he was in uh, prison in Rome. Amy told you this the first week that we started this series, that Paul was in the middle of a court trial that he did not think was going well. In fact, he anticipated that he wouldn't survive. So he wrote Timothy on a, on, with some advice on how to lead the church that he'd left him in charge of. Paul had started a church in Ephesus that left Timothy as the pastor behind him, and he's giving Timothy some advice. Now, we're virtually at the end of the letter. We have one more week in this series, but I've got to say that this is the last week where we have advice specifically to Timothy. Next week, he has some personal comments that we're going to look at. I want to start, though, not at the beginning of this section, but in the middle, um, with something that Paul says about his current circumstances. It sets a context for what he's saying. So in verse 6, by the way, if you want to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, uh, this text is on page 1813, page 1813 but you can also read the words on the screen. He says this in verse 6, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. And you're probably scratching your head saying, What in the world is he talking about? Well, this first part, I'm being poured out like a drink offering, first of all, it sounds strange, so it needs a little bit of background. Romans typically at the end of a meal would end the meal with a sacrifice. And one common example or one common way that they did this was for the host to take a cup of wine and to pour it on the ground as an offering to the gods. So when Paul says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, he's really saying, Timothy, I've lived my entire life since I came to faith in Christ as an offering to God. So even if this trial ends, as I anticipate in death, my life has been lived with great meaning and purpose. I have served God. My life has been an offering to God. And we too can offer our lives to God. Now it may seem counterintuitive, countercultural for us to give our control of our lives to someone else, but Paul offered his life to Jesus from the time he became a Christian all the way till now. And even though he anticipates his death, he's saying that he wants to say, my life is an offering. And that's why at the end, by the way, his anticipation of death is why he says, the time for my departure is near. Now, if we want to go back now to verse 1, Paul actually puts this not just in the context of his own life, but in what you might even call a cosmic context. Because in verse 1, he begins this way. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom. Now, we live in an interesting time in history because we've never had our lives more documented. And I'm not just talking about pictures and Facebook and Instagram. You can't walk into a bank or a store or drive through an intersection today without being filmed. The cops have body cameras. Anyone with a cell phone can turn into a CNN videographer. Our condo building that we've lived in for the last four or five years has 
over 20 cameras and a hard drive that can record 30 days worth of material on what's going on in our building. So if a resident decides to gun it and try to get under the garage door while it's coming down and misses, we know exactly who it is. And a few of them have been very surprised. Um, every one of us literally has gigabytes and gigabytes of information on us out in the cloud that you're not even really aware of. But Paul says, that's not new. Video cameras and cell phones have nothing on God because we live every single moment of our lives in full view of the living God. And one day we're going to have to give an account for the lives that we have lived. Now, there's really no such thing as secrecy, and that might sound big brotherish to some, but I would argue that in many ways, we really want this, we need it. Now, it may feel intrusive, but it's also comforting to know that God is always with us. The God of the universe, there's no place that we can go where he is not, where he's there to watch over us and take care of us. And that's the way we need to live our lives. Then Paul says, in the end, Jesus will return. And sure, when he comes and returns, he will judge how we lived our lives. So there are bound to be some humbling moments. But the message of the Bible is that God loves us, that his death has made a way for us to experience forgiveness and his grace, while undeserved, is available to all. In the meantime, we need to use what Paul says here as a challenge to live our lives in a way that we are ready for whenever it is that Christ returns. I heard a story once about a little girl who went to church with her mother and the pastor talked about the second coming of Jesus and she didn't really quite get it. She was asking her mom to explain it when they were home. And finally the penny dropped and she sort of got the whole concept. And she got paused and said to her mom, Mommy, would you comb my hair? Because she wanted to be ready to look her best when Jesus returned. Now it's here that Paul shifts gears and tells Timothy what's on his mind. Now I'm going to say up front, this little section I'm about to read, it may be tempting for you to tune Paul out. Um, I said this in an earlier week, but it's worth saying again. Paul and Timothy were pastors, and so Paul's giving him some specific uh, advice for how he's to do his job. So while some of what he says is job specific, there are other parts of it that relate directly to us. So I hope you can find those, and I'll try to point them out. So Paul says, I give you this charge. Now let me pause there. What he's saying really is pay attention. Here's what I need you to do. And then he says, preach the word. Now let me just say something. I know that some of you did not grow up going to church. And if that's you, um, there are things that church people say that sometimes are frankly mystifying. So, for example, some church people talk about being blessed all the time, which you may find odd. Or, or they say it's a God thing. Or they love on people, which sounds a little creepy. Um, or they talk about a hedge of protection. What in the world is a hedge of protection? And some Christians use the word just a lot. And I mean a lot. In fact, when you hear some Christians pray, they sprinkle just in the prayers in a way that doesn't make any grammatical sense. That said, some of the churchy words that you may hear Christians talk about are directly from the Bible, and they're important words, and sometimes we need to explain what these ideas are so you can kind of get in on, the, in, in on the, the, the lingo. And one of those is in this verse when it says, preach the word. Now, you may have heard people speak of the Bible as God's word, and it is a term that biblical writers use in a variety of ways, but most commonly, it's to talk about the message that God has revealed to all of humanity. For us, it's the contents of the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament that early Christians had discerned, had the ring of truth, and were considered useful, useful for telling us things about God we didn't know. 
for challenging us with God's will, the people that he wants to bless, for correcting our faulty thinking, showing us new ways to be truly human, and to prepare us to do the good that God has for us to do. So God's word is not our ideas. It's not things we've imagined. It's the pure, plain message God has for all of us. So it's the word Paul wants Timothy to teach to the church that he's now in charge of. And it wasn't an easy task because part of Timothy's temperament, Amy told us the first week, is that he was shy and timid. So Paul tells him, listen, get some courage. And he says, be prepared in season and out of season. Be prepared simply means to have a sense of urgency to share the message that, uh, he had been passed on, that had been passed on to him. And then he says, in season and out of season, which means to share what he needs to share, even if it's inconvenient for Timothy to do it at the time. That means when he has an opportunity to share Jesus with others, he needs to seize the moment and to extend the invitation that Jesus offers to all of us to others. Now, let me just say something here because some of you probably experienced uh, or been uncomfortable at some time because some use what Paul says here as an excuse to be rude and to push things on other pe down other people's throats. Now, in a moment, we're going to see what, that Paul is not saying that that's what, what Timothy ought to do. So if you can just press pause for a moment, I want to finish with what Paul tells Timothy here, and then we can try to balance it out. Now, the truth that Timothy learned from Paul is of vital importance. In fact, you could say, in fact, it's not a stretch to say that it's of life and death importance, spiritual life and death. It's the message that we are all accountable to God, that we've all sinned, and that we need Jesus, and that when Jesus died on the cross, he did so to forgive us of our sins, and when he rose from the dead, it's so that we can find life in him. And that's the message that Timothy was compelled to share. Paul tells him then to correct, rebuke, and encourage. So teaching the word or preaching the word means correcting the wrong ideas we've picked up from the culture around us. It means warning us when we stray from God's will in our daily lives. And it means encouraging and inspiring us to do what we know we ought to do. Now, just as I said a moment ago that Paul's comment about being prepared in season and out of season, sometimes people use this correct and rebuke as an excuse to unload on others. But we're not to be insensitive or brash. We're not to barge into places we haven't been invited into. Now, we're not to be silent either, but sensitively and carefully, we're to share what we've learned with others. So Paul uh, pairs this in-season and out-of-season and correct and rebuke messages with one other thing. He says to preach with great patience and careful instructions. So share. Don't pressure people. Say what needs to be said, then let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does, which is to reveal and give insight and to encourage and other things. And then to teach others carefully in a way that they are able to understand what God has to say to them. Now, the message we have is of ultimate importance. It's a message we all must share, not just pastors like Timothy and Paul. Yes, it's convicting because it starts with the gravity of what we've done when we disobey God. But it's also a message of beauty and hope when we understand that Jesus has given us life both now and for eternity. So even the correction and the rebuke in the Bible's message is not there to drive people to despair or to make them feel hopeless. At the core of the message is God's love for all of humanity. So yes, it's a message of life and death, but the emphasis is on life. Now, if you've been with us in previous weeks, you know that Timothy had some difficulty with some leaders in the church uh, that uh, he'd been left in charge of. Some of them were trying to alter the message that Paul had left them with. Paul called them false teachers. 
And at this point in these concluding remarks, the comments that he makes to Timothy, he talks once again about these folks. So in verses 3 and 4, he says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, there's a lot going on. We also have a lot going on in the service, so I don't have as much time as I might normally have. But let me try to summarize what Paul's saying here. He starts by simply predicting that a time's coming, coming when people will not put up with or listen to the truth. Instead, they only want to listen to what they want to hear. And he uses a vivid metaphor to describe this. He talks about itching ears. What he means by that is that there are people who will only listen to teachers who tell them what they want to hear and what they already agree with whether it's true or not. The criteria that they have for judging teachers is whether or not, not whether or not they say is true, but whether it's something that they agree with. And they were finding that there were people who were willing to accommodate them. Now this happens all the time, and it happens not just in church things, it happens in culture around us as well. So politicians do this, business leaders do it, and even pastors do it. It was common in Paul's day, it's common in our day today. In fact, it's only human nature to listen only to what we want to hear and close our ears to anything else. And there are always people who are willing to fill that gap. For us, this is most dangerous when the sort of thing our itching ears want to hear are at odds with historic Christian faith. It's particularly tempting today because some of the advice that we get from the culture around us is, for example, follow your heart. I don't want to discount feelings. I don't believe that God made us as just great big minds. I think that we are a combination of reason and emotion. But some of the worst advice that we can ever give anyone is to follow their heart. The problem is that there are plenty of things that seem right to us, for which God has a better idea. Our hearts, the Bible tells us, can be mistaken, even evil. So we need an external standard of the good and the true and the beautiful if we want to go in the right direction. And this applies to our moral judgment as well. As good as our consciences can be, they're never perfect. In fact, we can have either an under or overactive conscience in certain areas of life. Ultimately, what we need to do is to look to the truth of the Bible to judge whether we're feeling, whatever it is we're feeling, is consistent with what God has for us or not. And we have to be very careful about just looking for those who say what we want to hear. My experience is, is that the truth of the Bible challenges us all in one way or another. The longer I um, have a relationship with Christ, the longer I, uh, I'm alive, the more I find that there are things that I didn't think about before that are challenged by something that Jesus has for us. So as we cl go closer to Jesus, we'll find things about ourselves that need to change. And God's way, the way of Jesus, is ultimately best for us, even if it may not seem like that in the moment. Occasionally, someone will come to me. I've had this happen a few times where they'll describe a dilemma that they're facing. They'll ask for some advice. I'll listen. I'll think of what I know the Bible has to say for that particular situation, and I'll give them my opinion about what I think God would have them do. And then I'm surprised when they become angry, sometimes storm out of my office, and it's only then that I realize that they really weren't looking for advice. They were instead looking for someone to bless what they'd already decided to do. And these days, it's easy to find people who will tell you what you want to hear. The Internet's full of these sort of folks. In some cases, they offer alternative takes on unpopular ideas in the Bible, whether it's what the Bible says about human sexuality or about greed and materialism, about God's commitment to the poor, the refugee, women and children, or even just about what it is that Jesus 
is for us, the one person through whom we can have a relationship with God. So here's what I think we need to do. First, I think we need to make a commitment to seek out the truth, even if it's uncomfortable. Seek out the truth, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable. Second, I think we need to agree that we will not lie to ourselves when the truth makes us feel bad about ourselves. We won't lie to ourselves when the truth makes us feel bad about ourselves. And then we need to understand that the thing we fear most is not the truth, but it's lying to ourselves in order to feel better about ourselves. You know, it's after this warning that Paul summarizes his final piece of advice to Timothy in this way. In verse 5, he says, keep your head in all situations. Now, literally, it is, he says, stay sober. In other words, don't lose your head, think clearly. And then he says, endure hardship. The Christian life will cost us something, but God will take care of us. And then he says, do the work of an evangelist. That is, to tell others about Jesus. And then he says, discharge all the duties of your ministry. So do your job. And in Timothy's case, that was be a pastor. In our case, it may be something very different. But we can do that for Jesus. And then Paul adds this postscript, a couple of verses at the end, that are probably the most familiar and inspirational words in the entire letter. Verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Earlier in chapter 2, Paul used them an athletic metaphor, and we talked about it then. Um, he also does it in other places in his letters, and he does it here. In fact, I think Paul was probably a little bit of a sports fan. And he starts out by saying, I've fought the good fight. I don't think he's talking actually here about wrestling or boxing, but he's really saying, I've competed, I've done all that I can, I've done my best, and win or lose, I have no regrets. Before Kathy and I were married, uh, Kathy taught for two years, taught English in Japan for two years. And uh, she learned a word, a Japanese word, that's become part of our family vocabulary. Uh, one time, she, what she did, she had a couple of students, um, children that she was teaching, and uh, she was playing a game with them, and she had some objects, and she would take, give an object to a child and have them put it behind their back, and then the other child had to guess what the first child had behind their back. And one time she was doing it, and the student who was guessing was not really putting a lot of effort into it, was saying random things that didn't make sense, and... The student who had the object behind his back got frustrated, and basically he thought he wasn't trying hard enough. And so he looked at the other student, and he said, gambate, which in Japanese means try hard or give it your best. And it's a word that we use in our family. Gambate, try hard, give it your best. Paul also says, I have finished the race. Now you'll notice he doesn't say that he won, just that he finished, and he finished well. I once heard the story of a famous man who refused to allow his biography to be published while he was still alive. Why? Because he said, I've seen so many fall out on the last lap. He really wanted to finish his life before he had anyone say anything about him. And finally, Paul says, I have kept the faith. Paul's lived faithfully the faith he received from Jesus. He told Jesus he would serve him, and he doesn't want to let him down. Many years ago, my parents were traveling in New England, and they went to a cemetery. Uh, there was buried there a man that my father greatly admired and wanted to see his tombstone. But while they were on their way trying to find this man's tombstone, they stumbled across another tombstone with the statement on it simply, she'd done all she could. Now, I know that's not grammatically correct. And while it's poor grammar, it does capture beautifully the idea of a life well lived. Now, there's one more thing that Paul wants Timothy to know. He believes that living a life of faithfulness 
ultimately will be rewarded. And that's what we read in verse 8 when he says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul is likely to lose his case in court and probably to lose his life. But he believes that one day there will be a great reversal. He believes he'll be rewarded for his faithfulness to Jesus. And the reward he's talking about here isn't salvation, but rather to hear a well done, thou good and faithful servant from Jesus. Paul didn't care what those around him thought of him. He only cared what Jesus thought. He looked forward to a day when Jesus would return, when sin and evil were destroyed, when the wrongs in this world are made right. Now that day has not yet arrived, but it's coming. And like Paul, we too long for Christ's appearing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this advice that came from an older man to a younger man. Advice that came from experience and wisdom and knowledge from dedicating, in Paul's case, his life to studying the Bible, to studying the scriptures that were available to him, to hearing the stories of Jesus, passing that information on, and challenging Timothy to be faithful to that. Father, we pray that we would fight the good fight, that we would run the race, and that we would be faithful to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name.